DGFG is proud to present Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge and Friends, a podcast with a purpose where real and raw conversations are had about real world experiences happening in society on a daily basis. Real talk leading to a greater awareness and understanding in areas of social injustices and marginalized communities, entrepreneurship, gender equality, and empowerment, politics, science, adversity, finding promise, positivity, and inspiration, and so much more. So get comfortable and get ready for great talks and many moments of laughter with Nikki. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge and Friends. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Travis Miller, who's going to give us some insight on COVID-19 from a doctor's perspective. My friend today and co-host is the owner of Do Good, Feel Great, and the reason that this whole podcast even exists, Kristen Parsky. Kristen, what's going on? Hey, Nikki, not much. Just, uh, you know, living the dream here in COVID times. Um, <laughs> Just got my shot yesterday, so this will be fun to talk about with Dr. Miller. Welcome, Dr. Miller. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. Good. Um, well, I know you personally because you've been my physician for, oh gosh, six or more years. Um, but can you just kind of give us a brief background um, about you and your education and your bio kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a California native. I, I grew up in Southern California. Um went to college in San Diego, then went to med school at UCLA, did training in uh, adult and pediatric, uh, general medical training and residency. And then I decided that I wanted to go on and be a allergist immunologist. So I finished my training in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then I've been back in Northern California, where my wife is from. I've been working here, living here for 15 years. And um, it's been fun. It's been it's been good. Certainly, COVID has uh, put to the test everything that I knew as an immunologist. Right. So, yeah. And you have a pretty unique clinic in Roseville, California. Um, yeah. When I first came on, it was a pretty standard uh, kind of care that that uh, I embarked on on that journey with you. But it's kind of evolved yeah. to something else. Can you kind of give us a little spiel on how sure unique your clinic is and what you do now? Yeah, so those first two practices were were large private practices. We took care of lots and lots of patients. Uh, I really felt a couple of years ago that healthcare was moving in a, I thought, a sort of a dangerous direction in the sense that we were basically being uh, required to see more and more patients just to kind of stay at the same place. And I really felt that was a disservice to patients who have immune issues, whether those are overactive immune systems or underactive immune systems. And so... We created a private practice where we have what we call direct care. Uh, we have much lower numbers of patients. Um, we're available 24 seven. We basically are focused at trying to keep very at risk patients out of uh, hospitals, health centers and things like that. So we're uh, pretty deeply invested in the patients that we uh, care for and partner with. And it allows patients uh, very quick access to us so that they don't have to go through big phone uh, phone data centers and call trees and stuff like that. If they're sick, we want them to be able to get in touch with us and we want to get back with them very quickly. So that's what we've, we've built here. Yep. And it's, it's wonderful. Uh, it's been a lifesaver. It's been a uh, kind of a transition journey with you guys and your staff, but it's just yep. evolved to be something very special. And, um, and I think that, speaking personally from me and my family, we just appreciate it uh, quite so much. So um, 
and and in that you are able to do a lot more telehealth, which was kind of happening a little bit before COVID was going on, because um, yeah. you have some patients that are uh, out of the state and yeah. whatnot. So, uh, from your perspective, is more of the telehealth going to remain after COVID's? Yeah. Um, so I think out? healthcare. I think healthcare in general across the country and across the world, the tele- telehealth is here to stay. Uh, we we broached telehealth in 2017. We really felt the need to expand beyond sort of the 50 or 100 geographical miles that are that are close to us. We had patients that were going to college. We had uh, we actually have patients on three continents. We have a patient in Asia. We have a couple of patients in Europe. We have quite a few patients on the eastern seaboard, and we've got college kids all over the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and telehealth telemedicine has really allowed us to use and leverage technology uh, for for the patient's benefit. Um, many of the patients that we take care of have established chronic conditions, which probably aren't best served in an urgent care, and their ability to reach us in the span of minutes, hours, uh, from hundreds or thousands of miles away, I think really uh, unloads the system, meaning ERs don't have these patients in their ER where maybe they aren't necessarily, they shouldn't be. And I think patients feel a big sense of security. So yeah, telemedicine, I think is, is here figuring out the technology of that. And also the financing of that will be probably one of the bigger hurdles in the next decade or so. But I I think it really benefits patients. And I think even the, even the older generations have come to appreciate that they don't have to drive, they don't have to park, they don't have to deal with traffic and the stress of that. So the ability to access healthcare providers from their living room or office or whatnot has made a huge difference. And unnecessarily sitting in urgent cares or ERs. uh, Waiting rooms, right, with uh, other sick people, right? Exactly, exposing ourselves to something Mm -hmm. we probably shouldn't. So, um, and I would be remiss not to let you go ahead and focus a little bit on the food allergy um, side mm-hmm. of your practice, because uh, you really do see a lot of uh, severe food allergy patients. And I we know do. if you wanted to say a little bit about that as well. Yeah. So 15 years ago, when I came to practice here at, at where I am, uh, food allergy was probably less than 15%, 20% of our practice. Uh, and that number has continued to go up. We are, we're seeing probably north of 40% of our patients who have food allergies now and some of them have severe food allergies and they're definitely a a major focus of our practice we're learning how to not only avoid those food allergies but we're also trying to overcome them and so we have one of our um, channels that we work in is a intensive desensitization program for children with children and adults but so far it's been children uh, with severe food allergy to nuts eggs milk variety of different foods and even some you kind of don't even think about, uh, I could, without saying somebody's name, but a, a certain sure. young lady that I know of uh, <laughs> started to really develop her food allergies at right. 16 to 18 years. Right. Um, and what we would have thought was a normal stomach ache was something completely different. Um, and it wasn't until Travis was able to say, uh, you know, let's, let's do a full panel that we could see what she was actually able or uh, what she was actually allergic to and what we should um, avoid, which was quite extensive. Right. And now she lives hundreds, 
and and we have patients that live thousands of miles away with food allergies, but we're able to manage it through focused testing, getting answers quickly, and then getting people on a, a plan that, that really changes their quality of life and, and, and the burden of having food allergies. If you're at college or other phases of your life and you have uh, food allergies, it's daunting because you've left the safety and the comfort of your parents' home. You're somewhere different. You're on your own. You have to fend for yourself. And if you have food allergies, it's a big deal. So mm-hmm. we really that's really a part of our practice that we enjoy, even though it's tough work. Uh, it's very gratifying because, like you said, people tell us that they they derive huge benefit from from the programs that we get them on. So. Right, right. It has been a game changer for her. It's uh, awesome. a little little different because she's got to make her own meals now. But uh, you know, she's managing yeah. through it and uh, yep. getting a lot of good guidance along the way. So we're gonna um, branch on over to probably what has consumed a lot of your life in the last year, which <laughs> is. Uh, COVID. And, um, and I know for all your patients, you've been able to really kind of break it down in a way that we weren't panicking and thinking, uh, like as Nikki's wife would say, the zombies are coming out and the world's going to end. Um, so yeah, you were able to really kind of talk a lot of your patients off that sheer anxiety, stressed Mm -hmm. ledge to really look at it. Um, in a different way and just kind of normalize it to how we could go through our life. So um, just scientifically speaking, looking over the past year of COVID, what are your thoughts from when it started to kind of where it's all evolved to today? Yeah, I, I was in Hawaii actually at a conference, which is sort of my one reprieve a year I go for a week to Hawaii to a medical conference. And I actually sit in the classroom and listen and try and study. This time we were getting dressed to go to a, a dinner and I walked past the TV and the, the Iowa primaries were happening. And just in passing, they said a blurb that we had decided that uh, plane flights could only fly into the United States from Wuhan, China uh, to Seattle, San Francisco and Dulles. So we we're only going to allow three airports to receive airplanes from this uh, this part of China. And this was like February 4th. And I thought that was so weird. I just thought that just doesn't seem right. And I couldn't understand why, although we've had outbreaks and zoonotic infections and things like that. When I got home to the Sacramento area, I started talking to my team and I said, you know what, I think this is going to be a major public health issue. So we were actually ahead of the curve, I think, in the sense that we were getting going on PPE and and protective equipment. We were setting in place protocols and things like that. So we were able to jump ahead of the curve and really better understand we were going to get hit by a tidal wave. This year has just been incredible. Um, There's it's the amount of devastation which has happened on so many levels is just hard to fathom and it's hard to absorb. I mean, I, my soul is bruised and I don't know if it will ever, if that scar will ever be completely gone. Mm -hmm. That being said, I'm, I'm a very hopeful person. I believe that today and tomorrow hold immense promise and that we are, we're a very, uh, enriched society and and we work together and, and we can get stuff done. We still have some some hurdles, I think, that are significant. Vaccine rollout in the first 45 to 60 days was suboptimal. I think that's a fair term to use for it. 
now I think we're ironing out some of the wrinkles and it, it matters if you're in a state that has 40 million people like California versus if you're in a state that has two and a half million people, your vaccine rollout can be markedly different based on just the sheer scale that you have to cover. Uh, the vaccines are making a big difference. Uh, I agree that we need to follow public health measures uh, for for a period of time. And, and I don't know what that number is, whether that's six months or 12 months. I think we're going to be doing some distancing. I think we're going to be careful around people that don't live in our house. Certainly in my environment at the office, we wear masks. When I'm out and about, we wear masks. And we'll probably continue to for a period of time because the public health measures are part they're one of the tools that we're using to drive the virus back into control. Um, I'm very hopeful, uh, partly because I believe that the changes that are being made, allowing people to see glimmers of hope is is important. The um, feeling like you're, you've been sentenced to not leave your house was devastating, particularly when talking to my parents, my in-laws, people of that generation where their their time here is finite and they they need hugs and they need family gatherings and they need holidays and they need sort of a source of joy in the future. So it's a balance, I think, between taking care of our responsibilities today and our goals for tomorrow. And I, I think we just need to work together in communities. I think that's a, an easy way to, to break it up is work in communities to protect the most vulnerable until we you know, drive vaccination numbers way up. Um, our, our health systems, our hospitals, I think are in a much better place in the sense that they have the supplies. Uh, we should come back and talk about burnout because I think the burnout that was suffered yeah. by medical professionals needs to be touched on and needs to be understood because it's not a short-term phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, but I think our health systems are better buffered and protected now, so that's huge. And then we just need to, um, you know, watch data and come to some agreement on what are reasonable numbers. Because I think media has been difficult this year. We can talk about that, especially one of your next questions. I think we get into that. But right. what do we trust? What are the numbers that we trust and, and where are we getting them from? So Right. Okay. And, and I think um, we probably should speak a little bit on kiddos going back to school because I know mm -hmm. Nikki's got 11 and 14 year old and she can't wait for them to go back to school. Right, Nikki? <laughs> Get out of the house. Um, and yeah. Dr. Miller as well has school age yep. children. Um, mm -hmm. And he's also in a county that, that has the schools have gone back um, mm -hmm. in a fairly safe way, I guess is the easiest way to say it. And, and mm -hmm. you're also able to do coaching at the high school. <laughs> so uh, I think, unless if that has changed. Yep. So, um, can you speak a little bit about how these kids are going to go back safely? Sure. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a great point because obviously bringing school into the bedroom and the living room on March 14th or whatever date that our our counties and states decided that was a huge shock. And some families, I think, were very well prepared for it and some weren't. If you look at socioeconomically disadvantaged children, I think bottom line is the number I heard was that 30% of children may not have had one hour of instruction since this started. And that, Jeez. that number is just amazing to understand. 30% of school children in the United States may not have received one hour of instruction in a year. Mm -hmm. What that's going to do academically. And if we're going to have to 
reset people's grades or put them back? I think that's a big, that's a bigger question and probably for someone far smarter than me to answer. But <laughs> to your specific question, I think getting kids in school is important because the neuropsychological development, which happens and the socialization and the other things, the getting out on the playground and running around and dealing with um, situations, both good and bad, I think those are important learning opportunities for children that they have not had. Um, some kids do very well learning through screens and technology. Some kids do very poorly. And, and there's probably a bell-shaped curve that we're going to see that we have kids that are way behind and how do we catch them up? Um, depending on what the schools have as far as resources, uh, I, I've heard that the CDC is considering whether the amount of distance between students is going to change from six feet to something less. I've heard three and I've heard four. I don't know where that's going to land. Um, I think we're going to go back to school probably with some sort of masks, although I think we all want to get out from behind the mask. I think we realize if you're getting chemotherapy for a newly diagnosed cancer, if you have some other health condition which requires you to be masked, but the, the general population, I think, wants to take off the mask because smiles are really important. Every time I see a six-month-old, I start blowing bubbles with my mouth behind a mask and I realize that the visual part of that is totally lost and that the baby's eyes don't do what they used to do when you used to blow bubbles, you know, with your tongue for little babies. They just they're missing that half of the face of all these strangers that they that they come in contact with. So schools need to come up with comprehensive plans that benefit all students. Masks are probably going to be part of that. The distancing um, is is, a, is an equation, is a part of that equation. Uh, getting the teachers vaccinated, I think that was a big hurdle. And I think we're knocking that down very quickly. I think certainly in the state of California, the goal was to try and offer teachers, all teachers, the opportunity to get both doses within 60 days. And I think the state is going to come very close to that, which would be great. Yeah. And when I say teachers, I really mean teachers, administrators, staff, personnel, everybody that walks on that campus in the 60 day window would have the opportunity to get the doses of vaccine that they needed to be considered safe to reenter. And then it's, it's complex because you got to know your health system and what its capacity is. You've got to know how much positivity rate you have in the community. You have to know if there's variants, you have to know do you have pockets of elderly skilled nursing facilities and things like that where it could pop its head back up again? So it's a little it's a little more complicated. Right. And and I don't know if you because you touched on it a little bit that that psycho social emotional side of it. Um, mm -hmm. We're unfortunately seeing some kiddos that um, it, it's just been so hard that that they have unfortunately left us on this earth. And then we have these kiddos that are going back and learning how to really adjust to all that when they've been missing a whole year of something like this. Um, yeah. I think for Nikki can speak from, for this too. Um, cause she's got an 11 year old who for most of the time has only had either himself or he has a stepbrother some of the time in the home. So it's very isolating and getting back into the school environment. Like, do you foresee that some of these kids are going to have a little bit more adjustment than they normally do and do we have staff I think is my concern to really address those problems efficiently yeah I, I have a sixth grader and mm -hmm. and she has definitely 
felt the emotional loss of classrooms and, and proximity to people. She's a hugger. She's a very social, not a social butterfly, but she thrives on positive feedback as probably do most kids. And she's missed that. So reintegrating her into the classroom and getting that will be an adjustment. I think there's other kids who've had major mental health struggles and um you know we're dealing with uh the economic impact and possibly um food insecurity uh you know you've got disruption of housing units and things like that 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 moved families around and families have broken up and the the structure of our homes isn't what it was maybe 15 18 months ago so um, there's a lot of challenges that are out there. We definitely need mechanisms for adjustment. We need to understand we don't just all get to go back to school on August 15th and everything's going to be hunky dory, like, woo, yay, it's yeah. back to like we were. It's going to take us, I would imagine it will take us in reality two to three years. And I'm talking about school years mm-hmm. to get to a level of normal that might, um, that might approximate what we saw prior to COVID. I don't mean that to be a doomsday proclamation because I I just pulled that out, honestly. But the first year isn't going to be normal. We're going to be driving towards normal, but it's going to take backup mechanisms. It's going to take volunteerism. It's going to take, we lost our, um, our science lab, our science lab, a uh, staff member was riffed immediately at the beginning of this. And so one of the enrichment programs that that's there and music got, took a hit, uh, choir took the hit, all of the things that I think sort of fill kids buckets, arts, you know, all these different things fell athletics. to the wayside. Yeah. yeah and, is a and, huge one too. And, and we got to bring these back in because they are part of what makes that neurodevelopmental emotional package for kids so good for their growth and um we're facing major economic you know issues and budgetary problems and things like that so i'm really a big believer you mentioned me being a swim coach in reality that's almost a volunteer position i i do get a paycheck but i think it works out it's probably the same amount i got paid as a resident i think it worked out to about 24 cents an hour but Uh um i i do it because i have the opportunity of of getting to interact with with 50 plus students and these are these are kids that have been on the sidelines for a year and they're they really need an outlet and they really need positivity every day and so my mantra to them when we walk on the deck i said i say if you're not having fun you shouldn't be here this is going to be about fun every day and right. hard work and fun aren't mutually exclusive. I, we do hard work when we swim in the pool. Mm-hmm. But kids need to have fun. Kids need to feel joy. Kids need to have opportunities and choices. And that's going to take a process. Yeah. I think, too, you you touched on a big thing with the social aspect. Like Kristen had said, my son, is he's in the sixth grade. He's 11. He's He hit puberty super young. But unfortunately, he hit it right during this pandemic. And it's almost like he is a completely different kid night and day. And I think part of that is he doesn't have social cues from kids around him. So he's almost picked these very isolating things to be a part, you know, playing a piano or doing model railroading in his garage. And he almost has, because he hasn't, there's this fear of hanging out with people that's been put into him now 
So sure. he doesn't want to hang out with friends and he's doing all these isolating things. And then he almost also like I see him and he almost like can't even relate to other kids his age mm. now because we've had this year and he's created his own persona, which is not like a normal, you know, like he wears business suits every single day now <laughs> and he and he only wants to talk about model railroading and classical music and i feel yeah. like if he had been in school he would have had his friends that would have been like nah dude let's kick a soccer ball or let's sure. <laughs> no no i don't want to do that like if he had play dates they'd be like no i'm not going to sit in your garage all day because that's not fun for the majority yeah. of kids but he's been alone almost doing these things so it just seems like it's going to be so hard to and unwire I, that I, I would say that uh, this is something i've sort of talked about with patients and it's it's the mental aspect that you were just talking about and socialization aspect that you were just talking about is applicable to many things that we deal with in health uh in health care and just sort of health coaching patients and wellness and that's the difference between zero and one is infinity if you if you study math zero is the absence of anything one is the presence of anything life life and death zero and one so start with one find a family that has a kid like your 11 year old son set up a play date in the summer so that they can go and they can have 90 minutes of doing railroad in the garage and then the next time the other kid gets to pick just start building a road slowly and i think our children will learn over time as they begin as we open up and and as we see each other it's sort of like after a after a nuclear event, which we all had a, a nuclear mental event there and we, we got driven into isolation, rebuilding those connections, rebuilding the bridges, rebuilding the friendship, rebuilding the trust starts with one. And that's certainly what we plan to do with our daughter. We've kept her pretty isolated and she's had, I think, one friend over once we were all vaccinated and everybody was done. She had one girl over to play in the treehouse. And that was enough for her to realize that those interactions were very important. They stayed outside. It was a bright and sunny day. It was safe. They wore masks, I think, when they came out of the treehouse and whatnot. So we can rebuild. I mean, I think that's that's something that gets back to hope is that we can do this we can rebuild we are inherently a good society and a good culture uh, and we need to show our kids that we're there for their fears we're there to reprocess help them reprocess what's going to happen but there is going to be anxiety there is going to be questions there are going to be concerns and i don't want to do that or our, our kids learned a different way here in the last 12 to sure. 15 months so yeah sure and i think that's kind of my worry is that do do we have enough people <laughs> enough adults <laughs> to help bridge that connection for these kiddos because um my fear is that we're just going to be like well the schools are open and everybody goes back to school these kids are like wait what are we supposed to do and we have a lot of parents who there's a lot of single parents or or there's mm -hmm. parents that are having to work double jobs just to, you know, because they're coming out of unemployment or, or whatnot, and then they're not able to give as much time as they have been at home, and just mm -hmm. kind of bridging those those uh, those factors together and having that connection, because I just feel like the kids, otherwise, if we don't set up some parameters for some support, that they might get lost in what to do. 
I certainly think there's the opportunity for kids to get lost. In fact, we know that we've lost kids. We've lost them to mental health issues. We've lost them to access to drugs. We've lost them to other things that are, you know, really important and challenging. Um, it's going to take a lot of volunteerism. We need to use the summer as a sort of project to get our kids engaging smartly, but engaging with each other again um, to to be able to um, bring back some level of normalcy, because that's what I think everybody hopes for. It's not going to happen with all of us just scrolling a social media feed. I mean, that's part of it, too. We got to put down we got to put down our phones and put down the devices that we've become so connected to in the last 18 months and we've got to say go get some sunshine go get some exercise go get some engagement so go get some you know go get the stuff that we've missed so yeah dr miller do you think there's a difference between like i know in my son's school district he's in san juan and they're doing a like you have cohort a cohort b so there's only going to be 14 students at a time they're all supposed to keep their mask on the whole entire time they're there they're only doing three hours a day for two days a week. Do you think health speaking, there's a difference between having kids go to school for three hours a day for two days a week versus just having them go back full time? Is there some medical science to that? Is it that they're less, there's less time for them to possibly be infected? Is that or do you think it's that's just kind of hogwash kind of doesn't really matter? I think it's I think most of it is <laughs> I don't think there's a whole lot of data uh, to stand that on, but actually why, why I think they're trying to, what I think they're trying to avoid in the school environment is meals. And mm -hmm. the meals require that you take off the mask. The meals sure. are in less structured areas, meaning cafeterias, lunch rooms, playgrounds, open areas where the order and spacing of desks and classrooms is lost. And so theoretically, it makes some sense, but I think there's very little data behind it, honestly. And I think that's what most schools have tried to do is just limit meal time so that there isn't a, an opportunity for children to take their masks off for 30 to 45 minutes. We've had the you know 15 minute exposure rule, the six foot rule. If you look at the six foot, that, that's a study from like, 1947 in military recruits where they studied how far a particle of saliva from a cough came and the and the you know one one soldier coughed 12 inches and another soldier coughed 20 feet so the average was six feet <laughs> and that's we're dealing with we're dealing with some older data here or the absence of data and so a lot of it i think they're trying to extrapolate common sense but um from the parent back to the parent standpoint, I mean that the the ch the children having these limited hours in school has certainly had an impact on uh, work, uh, the ability for the parents to work. I think as as companies go back to more in person working and need more people on site, that's going to put pressure, particularly on women in the workplace. We know that women have taken a hit, a bigger hit than men in this economy, and so it's a balance of all of these factors that I think we need to really understand and it, it's not perfect by any means so i think what you said makes perfect sense because <laughs> you know we hear the parents talk and everybody has had an issue with the wait why why is my kid going back to school 
at like 1.30 in the afternoon. And then other side is like, why is my kid's school ending at 12.30? And you're right. That's mm-hmm. like lunchtime. So they're avoiding that. Little they're skipping lunch the lunch. They're skipping yeah. the lunch hour. That's Yeah, yes. that makes that makes total sense. The social hour. <laughs> yeah, the social yes. hour. Where they take <laughs> off their mask. Um, so, so speaking of like the, the data, the statistics that have been through the years, it's not just in this year. Um, we just hear so many reports through the media. Um, so that's my next question to you, since we tend to give these different reports in the media on the statistics and trends of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us the most up-to-date um, numbers and what this means for the coming months and really what we, what we should be listening to? Because you got a difference of opinion on CNN versus Fox. Sure. So, yeah, I think if you look, the the best way to track the numbers, I think, is either weekly or monthly because you can't mm-hmm. track it by day. And there was a time where everyone was clinging to every day. Oh, my gosh, did the numbers go up? But buffering that with either a seven day or 14 day tracking trend makes the most sense. I think the CDC has fairly accurate data, although I think infections are from the beginning. Infections have been happening that didn't get captured with testing. So I think the I think we're going to find serologically when we test antibodies that there are people who have antibodies to coronavirus that never were tested and tested positive. Uh, the trends are I think we overall cases dropped 11 plus percent week over week, deaths dropped by more than 20 percent week over week, and that's we're continuing to see uh, a drop uh, from January. Uh, that being said. Uh, there has been some leveling out, I think, in this week or 10, 10 days. The the um, arc of the drop, I guess would say, or the inflection of the drop has changed. So there's some leveling out. That may be because schools are going back in, sports are starting. Really, I think we have to understand that um, there's probably 10 different things that we need to watch with COVID and the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, infection rates is one, uh, infection rates, which gets you to an ER hospital is two admission to the ICU need for mechanical ventilation is three, uh, death is four. Um, and then the flip side of that is the data that we really need to to understand and put in the same context is what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Are the children in school? Are the children able to do normal activities? What's happening with the workforce? Uh, you know, our labor numbers stabilizing. Are we getting people back to work? Are we getting people off unemployment and maybe back to the jobs that they wanted? Um, I know we're going to get some benefit, I think, here from this package to the unemployment protection. But come September, I think our economy needs to be much stronger to be able to support a competitive global economy because other other countries are going to have try and ramp up jobs to take our jobs. And the real question is, will we have a workforce that's there? So all of those, all of those numbers matter, I think in composite. So. Um, but I know that I guess through all of this, um, I've called you or text you many mm-hmm. times and said, okay, Fauci says this, Burks says this, I kind of get it, break it down for me, but mm-hmm. is it, is it really accurate? Like what we're hearing in the news is, as a, there seems to be some different media reports and then you have the CDC saying this and so on and so forth. So is that leading to more confusion and people not getting or believing in the vaccines um, or 
just kind of leaving yes. everybody in a, <laughs> yes. a fog on what That's to do? That's a very quick answer, yes. I think, I think the media is winning on eyeballs and clicks and listenership and okay. all that stuff. So mainstream media, be it television, uh, social media, uh, online media, uh, newsletters, uh, a variety of different things are able to uh, show data and discuss data in the way that they want to. I think one of the, the hardest things was that there was a lot of back and forth with policy, uh, certainly in 2020. I think there's actually been some back and forth in 2021, even with the new administration. Mm -hmm. And I think people really got scared that they couldn't trust uh, what was being said. They, they felt like career scientists and career healthcare experts uh, were being manipulated both ways, honestly. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what that's led to is, I think, an erosion of trust, particularly in the CDC. Um, uh, the vaccines, I think people are, there's a lot of vaccine misinformation. I was reading that much of that was driven by uh, the same Russian enterprise. I saw an article this morning that said that Russia drove uh, a bunch of misinformation regarding the vaccine, which doesn't surprise anybody, I would guess, because Russia is is trying to influence our culture. Um, so, yes, unfortunately, the media is pushing on all sides in different ways. Uh, what we try and do, at least in our practice, is we try and boil it down, really look at the numbers. And so if you ask me right now, case levels have dropped by 11.2%. Deaths dropped by 20%. Hospitals are in a better place. Vaccines are rolling out, but not optimized. And we still have to employ public health measures for a period of time. How long that is to be determined. And, and we try and update people every two weeks, every four weeks, however often we can. So. Yeah. It's funny how you said all the, the different like misinformation and, and I'm one of those annoying people who checks daily and I'm mm -hmm. one of those people who have hope, you know, oh, well, the mm -hmm. numbers dropped by a thousand today. I'm so hopeful for tomorrow, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I, I remember seeing the a thing came out on Sacramento and the very first article had said, you know, Sacramento could be dropping down into the red tier by Tuesday. And then the very next article was Sacramento will never drop down into the red tier. And this is the reasons why. And then you're like, oh, man. And they were like one after the other. And I'm like, where, sure. how did they like, did they not collaborate on this before they just came to yep. one decision? <laughs> yep. It's and that's uh, we have an investment advisor and her tagline is stay diversified, stay the course. And what that means is we got to we got to work on the vaccine we got to work on the public health measures we got to work on the the mental impact that this has had on us we got to work on rebuilding our communities we've got to re-engage our family structure we have to do multiple things across multiple channels simultaneously which is exhausting and you notice i didn't say work or yeah. put dinner on the table or finish the move the laundry that's waiting or this or that so all those other things are sitting there and we have to stay the course, which is this isn't this wasn't a sprint. This is a marathon. We're on lap number whatever we want to say. And there's probably going to be 10, 12 laps of this. We just have to be and it's exhausting. I mean, that's the other thing. I recognize that exhaustion is just part of what we deal with with the family units every day. So we try and help absorb the exhaustion and, and make it boil it down, make it easy for people to get real data. 
So. And um, I mean, I promised you to, not to be too political, so we'll take out the political views. But sure. um, so you kind of spoke to the misinformation and that getting in the way, but um, you know, I've been fortunate because I can, I can ask you these questions, but just kind of wrapping up that piece, like what are people to believe? Like, I know there's, there's some people that can't get the vaccine and we just know that, that for whatever reasons, health wise or whatever, they can't do that. Nikki and I are huge believers in science and medicine. So those that can, we would love for them to be able to do that, but they're not going to do it because of the misinformation. So what are people to really believe to get, yeah. them to, to get them to that point that they can make that really sound decision for themselves? Uh, hopefully they have a well-established relationship with a healthcare provider. That, that's the first thing. Um, mm -hmm. That would be a hope. One of the things we've tried to do with like our webinars, we've had six webinars related to COVID. We invite anybody. Our webinars are not closed. We have people who listen to our webinars that aren't patients of our practice and they don't need to be. I would rather give out good evidence-based advice to people who don't have a good nurturing healthcare relationship with a health with a health provi healthcare provider healthcare system. So um, we try and be accessible. That's one of the things, and I'm hopeful that the healthcare system will remain accessible with good information. I don't want to say campaigns because that sounds wrong. This isn't a campaign. This is a calling. This is a profession that we are, and we need to continue. We, we I'll say healthcare providers have to be resilient to misinformation, and we have to continue to show good data, good evidence. And I know that people are going to come at our, come at our, our work um, with, uh, with misinformation and misgivings and concern, fear, all the different things that they have. And some people will never get a vaccine. I, I accept that there are patients in our practice who say we don't do vaccines and that's entirely acceptable. Informed consent is one of the closest, closely protected rights of patients. If you look at the Geneva Convention and the the human rights protections, informed consent. If you've been given information, you can make your own healthcare decisions. And that includes not receiving vaccination. That is entirely your choice. I think with prisoners, there's some work around on that. But besides that, the, the general population has the right to make decisions about vaccines and everything else. Um, my job is to make sure that good information is present on a recurring basis to anyone who would potentially access it. And there are good places in social media. I know there's a lot of uh, physician and healthcare platforms that try and disseminate good information. Um, I feel like the, I, I feel like the White House, as it currently exists, the White House before the FDA, CDC, everybody was doing the best that they could. I think the reality is we didn't have information. We didn't have good information. And it's not always easy when you're in a governmental or political position to say, we don't know. That's a very difficult, it's a, it's a tough thing for me to say as a healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I tell patients that all the time. I say, if I don't know, I'm going to look you straight in the face and I'll say, I don't know. Let's go get help somewhere else. And so 
um, it's important for people to realize some things we don't have answers to. Um, and as long as, as long as people feel like they have a place they can go and trust, mm -hmm. but that gets back to media, media are pushing narratives, media are pushing agendas and people have to recognize when something is an agenda versus when something is evidence or science. And that's, those lines get blurred. Yeah, no, definitely. So, All right, yeah. I'm going to, I've, I've monopolized a lot of time. So I'm going to let Nikki uh, sure. ask her last few questions she has, and then we'll let you get back to your patients. Okay. All right. So we, we now have three major, major vaccines that are out. We have Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson. Can you tell us if you, if you have an opinion about the three, are they different? What are the difference? What are the benefits? What are the pros, cons? If you know, or if you think there are any, what do you, what do you think about sure. the three vaccines that are out? Okay. These are three very, very good vaccines. If you look at what vaccines need to do, uh, the rule, the first rule of Hippocrates is first do no harm. Our FDA would not license a vaccine if it felt that harm could potentially outweigh benefit. And really the bar of benefit versus harm is usually a ratio of 10 to one, 20 to one, 50 to one. These vaccines are very, very effective. More importantly, these vaccines are very, very safe. What I can tell you about these vaccines is they were scrutinized and they were studied in patients on a, on a scale of 20 times more patients were exposed to these vaccines pre-license than any vaccine in the history of our country. And I don't know if people know that an average flu vaccine gets tested on 3000 adults in their pivotal trials. We saw numbers of 42,000 and 45,000 in the Moderna and the Pfizer trials and Johnson Johnson's number was up there too. So we had so much data pre-licensing on these vaccines. I want people to understand there are risks of vaccines. Bottom line is people can have reactions. They can have allergic reactions. They can have immune reactions. They can have local reactions. Those are incredibly uncommon. And our job, my job as a healthcare provider, especially because I deal with patients who have severe allergic problems, my job is figuring out which patients can receive the vaccine, where can they receive the vaccine, what are the boundaries of, of receiving the vaccine, should they get it at a pharmacy, should they get it at a health clinic, should they get it at a hospital. And so we stratify patients based on any potential risk. But honestly, I got the Pfizer vaccine, my staff got the Moderna vaccine. Kristen, you just said you got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Yeah, I was able to get they, that one yesterday. <laughs> they, they do great. These are really, really important tools. We need other tools, but I, I, there, are, there are little tiny, I think the Johnson Johnson vaccine might say that latex could have been involved in it. So our patients who have significant latex allergy are probably gonna avoid the Johnson Johnson vaccine. Um, the first report of the Pfizer vaccine, the 20 cases, many of the patients that had reactions to the Pfizer vaccine had allergies. But if you look, it was to shellfish and sulfur antibiotics and other things, nothing really filtered out of that first report of the, of the reactions to the Pfizer vaccine. 
And in the meantime, we've given tens of millions of doses. So um, I think we can feel safe that these vaccines do far, far, far more good than harm. If you feel like you're a patient who has unique needs or unique concerns about vaccinations, work with your healthcare provider. And then if, if really needed, work with an allergist or someone that understands vaccines carefully, and they can help you navigate through which vaccine, when and where. So the, the, the side effects seem to be pretty much the same for all three, though. I don't know that I saw anything that's different there. So it's right. really just kind of on an individual basis how somebody reacts to it. Is that safe to say? That is. Okay. Uh, vaccines are known to give predictable symptoms. You can mm -hmm. feel you have a sore arm. That's first of all. You can have a headache. You can have low-grade fevers, chills, muscle aches. But these symptoms are mild in comparison to the COVID syndrome. Now, a lot of people get coronavirus infection and have the same symptoms as the vaccine, which are okay. Those aren't the people we're worried about. The people that we're worried about are the ones that get severe respiratory in involvement, respiratory collapse, need mechanical ventilation, those things. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've had a lot of those. So, um, but we want, we want to deploy these vaccines widely across all ethnicities, races, gender, like you name it, they, we need to get this rapidly deployed to be able to create protection across our society. And it's still important, would you say, that uh, even if somebody's had COVID, that they still get this vaccine? Because I, I personally have seen somebody get it twice, and I, yes. and I still say uh, get the vaccine, but that's, I'm yes, not a medical that, person, so. There's, and there's precedent for that. Um, mm -hmm. If you, the tetanus vaccine, we've been doing that, where we've been using booster tetanus vaccines across, across the way. Shingles, a lot mm -hmm. of adults will get shingles, and we're still using the shingle vaccine after a, after an outbreak of zoster or shingles to support that immune system and try and build both antibody cellular and other mechanisms of protection because vaccines do a lot to stimulate the immune system and create what we call immunologic memory mm -hmm. so yes vaccinating people who had the infection is going to be helpful as well because it gives a different level of protection yeah and, and nikki was uh, very upfront with her followers on her social media um, about her symptomology that she had after Moderna. Um, and, and I can say mine was probably somewhat similar in some respects. And I've heard Pfizer has some, some similar things as well. So I've just kind of wrapped it up as that just really each individual could have the same thing. It just depends how it hits them. That's what I found too, is, is that it just seems very situational on the person. Like I've had friends who had Pfizer who puked for 30 hours straight. And then I have people who've had Pfizer who they've had nothing. And then with me, when I got it, you know, my whole experience was wild because it wasn't done in a medical office. It was provided to me by national guard and the whole, whole experience was just wild. And then, you know, I had very common symptoms. I didn't have any problems about 12 hours later. I felt like I got the chills. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to go to bed. And then I woke up at three in the morning and my body had felt like, like my hands were clenched. It felt like I had rigor mortis. Like I, <laughs> like, like I couldn't move my bones hurt, but as I moved, I felt better. And as I got up and started walking around, it was almost just like, I got super stiff 
during the night and you know like yep. that's muscle aches and i was just kind of tired the whole day and that lasted about eight hours and then i woke up the next day and it was like nothing had ever happened my arm didn't hurt and i everything was i was like free and clear so it's just, i think the, i think the other thing that i think the other thing the general population doesn't understand is that the the mrna vaccine vaccine technology had been in the pipe for the better part of a decade we saw SARS, what we used to call SARS, not COVID. We saw SARS in 2002, and that was Bush as president. In 04, he started a SARS vaccine pipeline that went all the way, I think, through 2009. And the reason it was stopped was because we had the economic downturn of 08 and funding sort of dried up. But there was a pipeline laid of working on vaccines against coronavirus 15 years ago, and then it got picked up and rapidly put in the end zone with warp speed and other things like that. So I, I don't think that information has been disseminated widely, partly because we do have concerns about bio warfare and other things like that. And if you start talking about these things, they are some of these are national security protocols and projects. But I think the general population needs to understand these vaccines didn't pop up in February of 2020 and then get licensed in December. They had been sitting dormant since the first campaign of SARS and the companies that had more advanced technology like Pfizer, like Moderna, like Merck, like Johnson & Johnson, like AstraZeneca jumped in quickly midstream with a lot of information and were able to bring these vaccines and they did, they did get into an agreement with the government. I mean, that's the bottom line is warp speed helped us get probably two years ahead of where we might've been. And I really think that we need to have better um, trust that these vaccines are safe because the FDA um, looked at them in a rigorous fashion and the, and the data safety monitoring board and the, the committees that approve vaccines they don't, they, they'll reject plenty of medications, but um, these vaccines were safe enough and effective enough that it was decided go and go full tilt because we, we couldn't continue on the, on the path that we were on. So I think that's a really good point to drive home. Cause I know a lot of the majority of what I saw on social media was, it was this whole thing about how, you know, they've been working on a vaccine for AIDS for a bazillion years and still nothing's come of it. So how can we trust that this vaccine just dropped out of the air and now it's going to cure us of this or help us with this. And so I think there's that misconception is this yep. was just, this is a new, a new vaccine that nobody's ever heard of. And, yep. and it's just, you know, so I think you driving that home is really yeah, important for awesome. a lot of people that this is not new. This vaccine's been in works for a very long time. Yep. It's, and that's, I'm not certain why the government hasn't made a bigger emphasis on that unless it's part of the national security and, and bio bioweapon bioterrorism that that is possible out there but i think it's important that people if you if you step back and understand yeah. what what we look and it same thing with ebola same thing with hi virus same thing with many other things that we're seeing we've been studying them for a long time quietly at the cdc and then once once we get to this we were already probably halfway to the end point at the start when they when they said go with warp speed so sure yeah yeah so 
I was watching TV the other day, and you know, I like all this new stuff that comes through. I check it hourly, and I saw <laughs> that I saw that Europe is unfortunately heading into a third lockdown, shutdown. Yeah. Do you foresee that we in the United States are, since we tend to follow trend, that we could mm -hmm. be heading towards another lockdown in the future, or do you think we are more advanced than Europe? The hard, remember the hardest answer I said, I'll say as a physician, which is, I don't know. Sure. Uh, I'm going to say, I don't know, because I actually wasn't paying attention over the last four to six months, what Europe was doing with borders, what they were doing with travel, what they were doing with their schools, what they were doing with other things. I think we get a lot of information from the UK, um, particularly Great Britain, England, whatnot. Um, I'll say there is one difference, and that's probably that if you look at variants, and there's a discussion of variants that's percolating around, mm -hmm. variants appear to be able to get around the AstraZeneca virus, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, excuse me. And the AstraZeneca vaccine is not licensed in the United States. So the one difference I see potentially is that they went full tilt with the AstraZeneca vaccine in December. Meantime, their variants were popping up and going and going and going. We have not been using the AstraZeneca vaccine. And in fact, when it was looked back at the Pfizer vaccine, how it did against the variants, it blew away everybody's hope and expectation in the sense it was above 94% effective. It was like 97 to 99% effective at limiting severe outcomes from particularly the variants. I don't know if that's going to be the difference maker between the United States and Europe, but I, I do think it is concerning that Europe is pushing back towards that. And I think it's even more reason why we need to honestly consider the public health measures continuing. And, and that's not to say kids can't go to school. It's not saying that kids can't play sports. It's not to saying our economy doesn't open up some. It's saying we have to be smart and use all the tools we have. So, and that's all I know. I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a bioepidemiologist and I, I don't have Europe's data. So the most I can say is it looks like we're using a different vaccine right now. And the hope is that that affords us more protection than Europe had. Sure. And, and we've heard a lot, I know in ours that with the test and the stuff that comes out, that seems to be the vaccines that we're using seem to be just as effective with the different variants that are Yep. circling around yep. so far um do you think it's kind of just a side question but do you think that with the vaccines that we have that they will require booster shots i was asked that question yesterday i actually think that we will probably do some boosters in the at-risk populations and um those would be the those would be mostly the older patients uh there's what's called immuno immunologic senescence and that means that your immune system forgets senescence is is in the same root as senile so the loss of knowledge we know that patients can have immunologic senescence meaning forget the vaccine and therefore the booster and there's precedent for that with pneumonia vaccines there's precedent for that with tetanus vaccines there's precedent for that with measles vaccines there's precedent with that for flu vaccines and there's precedent with that with um the shingles vaccine so I'm guessing that at some point in the next 24 months, there's going to be the suggestion that patients 65 and older 
receive a either second or third dose of vaccine. And I'm in belief that's going to be a different modality vaccine than what they received. So if you got two Moderna vaccines, it may be suggested that you get a Johnson and Johnson vaccine six, 12, 18 months down the road, if you're over 65. And that's if we see a blip, if we see an uptick in hospitalizations, an uptick in ICU, continued sort of percolation of the virus, my humble guess is that we are going to see boosters suggested for at-risk populations. What about uh, people under 65 that really do like have heart issues? Pre-exist- yeah, pre-existing, yes, issues. those would those would be lumped in that same, those okay. would probably be lumped in that same group. I think we have to have a whole lot more data, but right now we're gathering so much data. We're gra- we're gathering 111 million data points in 90 days, which is just unheard of. I mean, 111 Jeez. million vaccines delivered since December 18th. That number is staggering. We've never seen this in healthcare. So, 6 months from now, 12 months from now, we'll have a billion or a trillion data points to look at to make those decisions. And that's where trust in the in the health educational systems, CDC, FDA, uh, all the all the other outlets, that's where we have to believe what these entities have a beneficent call. They are built to protect our society. And so if it's it's if it's said come October that patients should receive one booster vaccination from a different manufacturer than they first received if they are 65 and older, have underlying health conditions, do it. That that's just do it. It makes sense because a trillion data points is a lot of data. Anyway, that's, yeah. But even as a over 65 versus under 65, I mean, it's really no different than um, as a high-risk patient, I got to be really diligent about getting the flu shot all the time or the pneumonia shot or something like that. So it's not really too terribly different to expect that that might happen in the future. That's why I said there's there's precedent with other vaccines and public health measures. And that's where I think the the political social media football can get taken out of this where we say, look, we've been doing this for 70, 80 years since we've been using vaccines. This is not new. It's not the left and the right. It's what we do. And again, it's informed consent. For your benefit, we recommend X, Y, or Z, and then patients can decide if that's what they choose to do. Yeah. So, Dr. Miller, um, in closing, what do you think that the public can do to keep themselves, others safe, slow the spread, or keep on some type of downward trend? Like, what, what would you, what's your idea to help that? Common sense goes a long way. Um, balancing, balancing mental health, balancing physical health, balancing emotional health, protecting your household, uh, considering other people. Be, you know, be considerate. Think about your neighbors. Think about your community. Think about your school. Be willing to make sacrifices. We've made so many sacrifices for the last 12 to 14 months. We can continue making sacrifices for six more months, 12 more months. But the good news is we're going to have opportunities. We're going to have 
sources of joy. We're going to have sources of hope. We just have to be willing to be considerate. We're all part of a team. We're all part of a neighborhood. We're all part of a community and willing to help each other out. We'll get out of this. We've, we've been in worse situations before. Um, but do what you can to keep your own health as good as possible. Help other people. Um, keep keep being willing to follow public health measures, knowing that there is an endpoint in sight. These aren't, these aren't for infinity. These aren't in perpetuity. We're going to get rid of masks at some point, but now may not be the time. So. Sure. So okay. I just really want to thank you for giving us your time and spending this, this time with us to get good sure. information out there um we really we really really do appreciate you hanging out with us yeah. today and we'll uh, my pleasure we'll go ahead and put your uh, links to your practice and your uh your social media accounts and uh you mentioned those webinars that people can look at for free yep. so uh, yep. i would encourage anybody that's just kind of confused about everything just want to get really good information to go ahead and link on to those social media platforms that uh, Dr. Miller has for the allergy station and um, get what you need. Awesome. Well, thanks guys. You, you're doing a great job. I appreciate it and uh, stay safe. Thanks for listening to Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge and Friends. Tune in weekly for new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Visit us at dgfgllc.com for new updates. Sign up for the Grab in the Mic newsletter and links for the podcast merchandise. Hey everyone, the Grab in the Mic podcast merchandise is on sale now. The springtime sale gets you $10 off hoodies, $5 off tees. So go ahead and click on the links in the bio or head on over to dgfgllc.com.